When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, before we jump in, I want to give a big shout out to the Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. You're making this happen. Uh, if you guys have benefited from this podcast, you learned something, you enjoy it, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, a patron. You can find the link in the description. Uh, that would be huge. Really appreciate you guys. Uh, another way to support it would be um, subscribe on YouTube, click the notification bell so you can find all the new episodes as they come out. Usually be two episodes a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And uh, above and beyond, you can go over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would also be huge. Today's episode's another really exciting one. I say this all the time, but every episode has been awesome. Uh, I have with me Dr. Thomas Ward. We're going to be talking about his new Cambridge Elements book, uh, divine ideas. So without further ado, let's just pull them in. Dr. Ward, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Parker. I'm I'm a little bit nervous to have you on because uh, I haven't had anyone on who's had a better mustache than me yet, but but here you are. And this thing is amazing, man. That's how, how long you've been rocking the stash. You know, I grew out a beard in uh, 2015 when I was traveling in Europe and I, I don't really grow a very good beard. So when I got home, I, I shaved the beard, but then left the mustache and uh, meant to just kind of play a joke on my wife, yeah. uh, but she liked it. So I, <laughs> so I kept it. And so it's been about six years now. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. My, uh, so I, my logo has my, has my kind of beard and mustache in there. So I kind of made myself into a caricature. I can't really escape it, but yeah. My wife, likewise, likes it. I tried to shave it once uh, a year ago, and she said no. So this is my look forever, I think. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I asked my daughters last summer. I, I said, "Hey, would you mind if I shave my mustache?" and and they they were adamant. Uh, so it's, it's, <laughs> I'm stuck with it. That's awesome. I love it. I think I'm I, I'm starting to go gray a little bit, and I my guess is that once uh, once it gets all gray and wiry, I'll probably have a good excuse to. To, to shave it maybe i don't know that might make make you look even more wise though <laughs> yeah uh you, you'll get like the commissioner gordon type look which yeah, would be sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh well dr ward uh before we jump into your work on divine ideas uh curious how, how'd you get into philosophy at all well i went to uh i went to biola university uh in i enrolled in the year 2000 and i was already interested in you know, thinking hard about my faith, uh, grew up in the youth group world, had done some apologetic stuff, was a huge C.S. Lewis fan, um, but just really kind of eager to learn about e anything I could. So I got got to Biola, took some uh, classes in ancient literature and philosophy and was just kind of 
starstruck by everything I was learning about. And I asked a, a beloved professor uh, what he would recommend as the major to give me the best overall education. That's mm-hmm. how I phrased it to him. And this was John Mark Reynolds, who's now the uh, president of a of a uh, college in Houston called St. Constantine's. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he, he said, philosophy, be a philosophy major, take other classes to keep yourself rounded out. Uh, but, but do philosophy. So I got the philosophy bug in the fall of 2000. And shortly after that, I thought, I think I want to do this for my whole life. Um, so then just started angling toward the grad school track. And by God's grace and good luck or a combination of the two, maybe they amount to the same thing in the end. Uh, hmm. I, I, I got a job. So, so here I am. But yeah, it was 20 years. I, I've, I got tenure last year. Mm-hmm. And I was reflecting how it, uh, it was 20 years between deciding what I wanted to do for a living and then actually becoming permanently employed. <laughs> that was <laughs> a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. That's super wild. Well, so we're going to be talking about your, your new uh, Elements book, uh, Divine Ideas. And I just wanted to ask, like, in, in your mind, is this a work of philosophy? Is this a work of philosophical theology, analytic theology? Does it fit nicely into a category? Does it kind of blend or traverse uh, a few of them? Yeah, I, I think uh, that the, the topic itself is um, fits equally well in just straight up metaphysics. Okay. Um, I wrote it more from a theological perspective. Um, so I, I think of it as philosophical theology. Um, I know there's, you know, people are, some people like to parse out the differences between phil religion and philosophical theology and analytic theology and yeah. I, I myself, while I am in all of those worlds, I don't care too much about the the divisions, but philosophical theology is the expression I use um, to describe my own work. Okay, fantastic. Well, so um, uh, I was talking with you online and you were saying that you, you did your dissertation in hylomorphism. How did you come, how did you go from hylomorphism into uh, divine ideas? Yeah, good. So um, back in my biola days, like I was describing earlier, um, after I'd been in philosophy for a while, I finally got around to reading some Thomas Aquinas and uh, was just was blown away by uh, the philosophical rigor, the Christian faithfulness. Uh, it just seemed to combine everything I loved about the intellectual and religious lives. And so I, I really kind of parked myself in the Middle Ages and Hmm. branched out from there. And by the time I got to the doctoral level writing a dissertation, uh, I was interested in the topic of hylomorphism in general in in the Middle Ages. And Aquinas was my home base. But, uh, you know, the contingencies of finding a dissertation topic and trying to do something that gives you a shot at saying something originally original led me... uh, to explore SCOTUS more than Aquinas on that particular issue. And, uh, and that became the dissertation, but the, but the broader kind of intellectual atmosphere that I had been absorbing since undergrad days was, uh, philosophical theology in the middle ages. Um, I wrote a master's thesis on, uh, the metaphysics of creation Hmm. in Thomas Aquinas. And that got me thinking about, you know, not just, uh, the created world um, as such, which plays, you know, pl- 
plays into the interest in hylomorphism. You know, what kinds of things are there in right. this created world? But also the kind of vertical dimension of creation as related to its creator. Um, so those sorts of questions have been in the background for a long time. The, the divine ideas stuff was, um, you know, really as I was getting close to um, earning tenure and thought that I had done enough work in, in non-theological stuff, I uh, was kind of treating myself to something that I'd always really wanted to go deep on, but was maybe a little nervous to do yeah. until I had established myself a bit. That's I've, that's funny. I've heard people say that that you, you need to kind of do the uh, the other work, and then you get to do you've you've earned it. And you get to do more of what you want, especially if you're a, a Christian or or a theist at all. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. But I, I found you know so I I did this you know incredibly deep dive into natural philosophy in the Middle Ages and uh, and and learned a whole lot of weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> With, you know, so I've I've you know writing technical papers on the uh, four chemical elements and how they interact with each other and all of this stuff and stuff I'd never thought that I would spend my intellectual life working on. And, you know, there's some, there's some value, I think, to studying um, irrelevant things. (laughs) (laughs) It trains, trains your mind to, you know, it's, it's hard work. It's hard intellectual work. So it keeps you kind of mentally fit uh, for one thing. But then it's also good if, if, as a historian of philosophy, I'm looking at, uh, you know, a, a thought, a whole thought world that is mm. in so many ways very, very different from the one that I inhabit as a 21st century person. And so getting into the weeds on the stuff that just seems totally weird or totally wrong um, is, is part of the overall quest to just understand how you know, what made these people tick back then? That that sounds like uh, some of the influence from C.S. Lewis there, where you, you, you want to be a man who's uh, living out of time. And you can see uh, you can see the problems of today by studying history more. And uh, I, I thought the same thing. I love Lewis and he's helped me figure out, um, yeah, I want to be a man outside of time. I don't want to be so constrained by the questions of my day that I can't see the problems from today or see, hey, maybe they had some really good ideas back then. Let's yeah. not be you know, chronological snobbery or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember what, uh, my um, my master's thesis supervisor was uh, Marilyn McCord Adams, who mm. passed away a couple years ago. And and she used to say, uh, don't be afraid of the weird stuff. You, know, <laughs> you want to do this, this history, philosophy, history, theology stuff, you got to you got to embrace the weird. <laughs> mm, that's awesome. You you kind of got some weird stuff in this book that I want to talk about. I'm really uh, excited to talk with you about. Um, but but okay, as we're um, going in, I guess uh, where does this tradition start? So mo- most people think uh, divine ideas, and they think abstract objects, and they go with Philo. And and you you broach this topic, but in my head, it's uh, uh, learning from D. A. Carson here at TEDS. Uh, he talked about Devar or Debar. Uh, the the Hebrew word, and then uh, my my Hebrew professor, uh, Mad Dog McGarry, Dennis McGarry, said the same thing. Then I saw uh, a footnote, and you you cited Carson as well, uh, his commentary on John. Where does where does the idea the idea of divine ideas uh, come from? Is it gen- genuinely in Hebrew thought before Philo? I think that's uh, stretching it a bit, or hmm. or maybe you can't quite put the question to uh old testament authors um until you know w- w- without 
without some or, or, or readers of the Old Testament until you have some sort of reference point of, of Platonism. Okay. Um, so in, I think the Philo story is, is basically correct. If by divine ideas, we mean uh, in lieu of Platonic forms, yeah. we have God's thoughts. Um, that, that said, I mean, the, the idea that uh, the, that God's or the God's creation of the world is due to something mental rather than something uh, procreative. Yeah. You know, that, that idea goes way, way back in the history of religious thought, you Mm -hmm. know, where you get, if you you go to the oldest sorts of texts that we know about, and there are really two choices, either, either things come about through some sort of, uh, bodily activity, yeah. uh, you know, inter- sexual intercourse or sweat or spit, um, or things come about from mental activity, words, mm-hmm. thoughts, speech. Um, the oldest uh, kind of divine ideas reference that I could find is, is actually all the way back in ancient Egypt, yeah. uh, where some of the, some of the older accounts of, uh, the, gen- the genesis of the world from the gods have this ultimate origin in a single God who thinks, thinks things up and then speaks them into being. Hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, if you want to call that a divine ideas view, well, then, then I think that there is a, a good case to be made for an Old Testament um, divine ideas theory. Hmm. And, and, and in the end, you know, I said it's maybe anachronistic until you have some sort of convergence of Platonism with uh, Jewish thought. But in the end, what's what's essential to the divine ideas view is that God is the uh, sole ultimate origin of everything, including the ways that things can be, not yeah. just what there actually is, um, and that he's he 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 is this origin due to his being a person and so yeah. having thoughts. And then in, in that broad sense, then we can find divine ideas views uh, in Old Testament authors uh, and much, much further beyond. Even in some of the uh, Upanishads from India, you get certain views like this, uh, not to mention the Egyptians and so on. Okay. Well, um, you, you just mentioned there about uh, personhood, but something that I thought was really unique and uh, beneficial from your work is that you do focus on God as a person and the ideas here as, as uh, creativity. And so you say, uh, grabbed a quote from page 16, uh, this element, this Cambridge element is therefore more an inquiry into the nature of God's creative thinking than the metaphysics of so-called abstract objects, such as properties, uh, propositions, states of affairs, or mathematical objects, which you end up treating uh, here and there and making arguments for or against, which is really interesting. But I, I thought that was so fantastic that you wanted to focus on the creative activity because so often in these kind of conversations, it's it's just kind of cramming the Platonic realm into God's mind and then God's kind of the hub for these. And so most of the conversation is really on the abstract objects. And so I, I thought that was interesting. But what, what led you to think, um, you, you broached it a little bit already, but what led you to emphasize the divine ideas and the creative thinking uh, and creation uh, ideas rather than abstract objects? I think mostly it's a product of the of the particular historical way in which I approach the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, and, and as you've already alluded to, the contemporary discussion here 
starts with these metaphysical questions. Uh, you know, what are ab abstract objects? Are there here are the views uh, that someone could take about abstract objects? And then, oh, if if if, if you want to be a theist too, yeah. then let's let's see which theory of abstract objects plays most nicely with theism. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that approach, but it's uh, as again as someone out of out of my own time it was just utterly foreign to me to start thinking about the topic that way. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one thing I've noticed about the whole classical tradition by which here, I mean, uh, the ancient philosophical thinking from Philo on and through the middle ages that when, whenever any of these authors approaches the topic of divine ideas, it is, it is always through divine creativity mm. and thinking about, so to speak, the, uh, what God must be like, given that the world exhibits this rationally ordered structure. So God, God must be a, a wise architect. You know, that's one kind of image that Philo uses, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, holding, holding in mind the blueprint of everything. I mean, he, he originated that kind of oh, okay. uh, direct, you know, that, that full-on um, kind of monotheistic Platonism. Um, Know, thinking of the, the this, these architectural metaphors that we uh, advert to a lot when we when we're trying to explain God's creativity or a theistic view of divine ideas or, and, and abstract objects, we use these architectural metaphors a lot, and they, I think they ultimately come from Philo. But but even in um, uh, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, Anselm, Aquinas, Scotus, Bonaventure—I mean, all of these people are thinking about uh, God as the creator. And so mm -hmm. what, one thing I wanted to do in the book was, um, you know, not ignore the contemporary debate and the way in which the contemporary question is framed, but also uh, not get too much into the weeds on that particular issue and just try to try to start from what I consider a more uh, fundamental place, which is uh, there's, there's God and there's a certain kind of uh, awe and allegiance we owe God. Yeah. What are some of the, what, what must God be like if uh, he ought to be worshipped in that kind of unconditional and comprehensive way? And that's where I think you can get a kind of theological argument against there being uh, abstract objects that exist independently of God. Um, and then the task of cramming it all into God, as you put it, uh, becomes uh, not just a task of the metaphysician, but the task of uh, a theologian and a Christian who's uh, trying to give God as much honor as possible. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. I, yeah, I, I love that that emphasis and the starting point. So, so let's jump in on uh, like divine ideas themselves. Uh, you. This is this is wild. You you promised a metaphysical theory good enough for monotheism and good enough for for metaphysics. And I was like, hey, wow, that's a that's a strong claim there. What, <laughs> yeah, seriously, what what is a divine idea? A divine idea is a is a is a thought of God's, one of God's thoughts. Yeah, and uh, God presumably has thoughts about lots of things, uh, Himself most of all, and there is. Um, a tradition of Trinitarian 
speculation, of which I'm sure you're aware, that uh, tends to associate, if not identify, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, or the Logos, with God's activity of thinking. Yeah. And so the so you have at the very least you have God's perfect thought of Himself, um, which is so perfect it it replicates divinity. Right. <laughs> um, but then, presumably, God has if, if, on on the assumption that God is omniscient, uh, God has thoughts of everything uh, knowable. So then, there's a question about well. Given that there's stuff right now besides God, like a whole world, uh, God would have ideas of everything that exists. Yeah. And so we could talk about the divine idea of Parker, or the divine idea of Parker's mustache. Um, but then, if we if we if we try to imagine a kind of uh, logical moment prior to creation, where there isn't anything besides God, you know what? What then is available for God to think about? Right. If he has an idea of Parker's mustache, it's not an idea that is uh, in any way generated by the existence of Parker's mustache, right. uh, such that God is causally related to Parker's <laughs> in some sort of perceptual way. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't work like that at all. But then um, it would seem strange that if the the, the mustache of Parker is one of the ways that things can be uh, that God prior to the existence of the mustache would be ignorant about it as uh, would be ignorant that it's one of the ways that things can be. Yeah. And so then that, that kind of gets you uh, closer to this idea that even prior to creation, even if uh, God had created nothing at all, there would still be, God's thoughts about things God could create. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, and you, you made a, you motivated this problem really well. Uh, I, I was going to use uh, light when God says, let there be light, but, but let there be mustache is even better. Cause we both, we both have mustache. Uh, what, there's this idea of Parker's mustache uh, prior to all of creation in, in, in the mind of God. Uh, I, I think what thoughts, um, our, our thoughts have intentionality. I, I would say, maybe, maybe say not. But what what is that about? Like, what is that? Refer, is there any? Is it referring to nothing or to a potentiality or what is that idea ab- ab- about? Yeah, it, that's that's a really good question, and this is um, one of the more uh, I, I think re- one of the more radical sounding claims that I ended up committing myself to. Yeah. Uh, in the book, I I do think that the thoughts have to be about something, mm-hmm. um, and so then uh, you know, what what is there for the mustache idea to be about prior to God making any mustaches or things with mustaches? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it looks like we're stuck, right? But then, um, but we're not. <laughs> uh, so I'm just willing to absolutely affirm, you know, and and here I saw I saw. Um, one of your earlier episodes with Chad McIntosh and he had a tinfoil hat on. I think you were talking about aliens. That's right. Here's where I maybe need to put on my tinfoil hat and just say the ideas, God's ideas of things he could create, but hasn't yet are ideas of of himself. 
mm-hmm. aspects of himself, facets of himself, uh, ways that he might be imitable. Uh, there, are, there are different ways of teasing out uh, all of this, but that all of God's ideas of possible creatures are uh, ideas of himself. Yeah. And this, this does a couple of making that claim gives you two, two different, but related things. One is to, to answer the question that you yourself just asked, which is if there aren't any mustaches, what, what's God's idea of a mustache about? Um, so we get an answer there, but then it might seem ad hoc. If I just say, well, ideas are intentional. And so, uh, if I'm going to say that God has an idea of a mustache, um, I got to, I got to supply something and there's nothing else. So God, okay. Yeah. But the, um, but the second um, thing that this thought that God's ideas are about himself delivers to us is um, a kind of account of why there can be what there can be. Um, you know, one, one kind of hackneyed sort of Platonism mm-hmm. just makes it completely primitive that there are the forms that there are, the abstract objects there are. Um, So the, you know, the form of the mustache, it's just an eternal occupant of a platonic realm. Just a brute fact. A brute fact. And it just seems, it just seems strange that something so, um, well, the, the mustache just doesn't seem to have the right kind of heft to to re, to, to be in no need of explanation. Sure. Um, now, what what my view kind of gives us ultimately is not a full a full explanation of the mustache that just magically delivers uh, uh, an account that leaves no further questioning or wondering. Yeah. But it does kind of park the mustache somewhere. Um, did you like what I did there? Park the mustache. <laughs> That's Park great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so every, it, it the, the thought is that God has the right kind of infinitude of being to be the, uh, ultimate explanation of why there can be anything that there can be. And yeah. so to think about, you know, light as the example that I use in the book, mm-hmm. And that, you know, light has this kind of primordial, powerful, symbolic resonance for us. And so it doesn't seem too crazy. To no, that, that's exactly. I was, that one was nice. It's like, okay, God is light. We have, we have that in scripture. That's fine. Yeah. But then the mustache is like, okay. And, and I also want to touch on like lions. Uh, uh, so let me, let me just drop this into you. You say um, God, inclu- something like this. I may be par- paraphrasing. God includes all the creaturely ways of being. Yeah. And so there's like the uh, Leon, Leonis, Leonid, nice lioness, right? Yeah. That, that it's not like a, it's not the lioness doesn't refer to a, and I just a proposition in God's mind, but but to him himself. Yeah. So we got mustaches, lions, and also light, which is the easiest one. But yeah, that's right. It, I mean, I w- I was. Uh, interviewed by someone else and and instead of mustaches we talked about mud you know, oh, so okay. it's like huh so you're like so god's like mud <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess so now there's a there's one way in which we can just totally metaphorize yeah all of these other all of these things and say well uh god is god is like a lion and what that means is you know lions are fierce 
and uh, and strong and overwhelming in their power. And so by thinking of the lion in that way, we can get some, you know, the lion is uh, theophanous. And that's that's like Christ's lion of the tribe of Judah. That That's in the metaphorical way or maybe in an analogical way. But that's not what you're you're talking about here. I'm, I'm saying something a little stronger. Yeah, yeah. The, the metaphors are are ripe for I mean, it, it, it points us in this direction. You know, the especially the Bible gives us so many images of God that, you know, of course, in some sense, we shouldn't identify God with a lion, you know, much as we might admire the Chronicles of Narnia and the mm-hmm. character of Aslan. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's somehow not, it's not to be inferred that uh, God is both a lion and a lamb, like those creatures crawling over there. Okay. Yeah. So, so in some sense, there's a, there's a difference between the way that God is leonine and a, an actual living, breathing lion. Mm-hmm. But the but the uh, the motivation here for saying that God has a leonine aspect that is more than metaphorical comes from the fact that there is something distinctively liony about being a lion mm-hmm. that can't be um, eliminated with reference to more general categories under which the lion might fit, you know, right. so we can say a lion is a uh, substance. And so in that sense is like God, cause God is a substance. A lion is alive. And so in that sense is like God. And you, you keep drilling down until you get to the, you know, the, the distinctively liony features and say, well, here are ways of being, you know, the, the tawny hair, the, the golden mane or whatever. Here are ways of being. They stand in as much need of uh, explanation, you know, an explanation of why these are among the ways that things can be, as the, the higher order, uh, more magnificent stuff, like being a substance or being living. So even though we do have to end up saying that there's the, you know, we, we do have to talk about God, including with himself, literally all the creaturely ways of being. Um, and that is startling. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just the natural progression that motivates, you know, divine ideas of, uh, of, uh, uh, substances or living things in the first place. Let me try to back up a little bit there. So, um, Well, so I wrote down I wrote down one one uh, thing that helped me see it wasn't as crazy. I I like the weird stuff too, so I wasn't like angry or anything. Some people yeah. might go, "Hey, well, you don't have a creator creature distinction." I I think that you probably do, and we could talk about that. But um, but I was just excited to to hear uh, something that seemed crazy to me from someone who's not crazy. Uh, <laughs> but but then you I think you you motivated it pretty well by by talking about the attributes of God, and you and you discuss wisdom, and so you know. Um, I think you're very wise. You're not wise in the same manner that, that God is. And so there's a uh, an analogy or direct correlation or, or some kind of relationship that you can motivate this. This uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Leon, Leon, Leonness, Lionness. I, I don't know how to say that. But there's a there's a kind of correlation between the lion exhibiting lionness and the wise philosopher exhibiting wisdom. And both ultimately are grounded in in God or 
in God's nature, maybe? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and if that sounds crazy, it doesn't sound crazy for wisdom, but it does sound crazy at first right. for lion stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, but the way that you get there is by considering, you know, it it's it makes sense for wisdom to be. Um, it makes sense to think that wisdom is included in what God really is as a divine attribute, mm-hmm. not just um, because it's w- one of the traditional divine attributes, but right. because, but because if God, if God didn't already have wisdom about himself, you know, that, that if wisdom wasn't something intrinsic to God, then when God makes wise things, uh, either he's making irrationally, you know, he doesn't know what he's making when wisdom yeah. pops into, into the world, mm-hmm. or he's drawing on something outside of himself right. to learn about what wisdom is. Yeah. And then, you know, having discovered the nature of wisdom, he then as a creator can go and make things that are wise. And then you fall so, right into the Euthyphro dilemma there. Well, yeah, yeah. But if, so if you're thinking about uh, how wisdom must be included in God, not just from the perspective of the traditional list of divine attributes, but from uh, conditions that must be met in order for God to be a rational creator, then you have to end up saying the same thing for the much more homely sorts of ways of creaturely being. Um, you know, and, and and that's where I'll say, yeah, fine. You know, whatever, whatever the... Uh, Whatever the mudness of mud is, or the lionness of lions are, mm-hmm. all of these ways of being are hidden in God. Why do I have to say that? Well, because God made a world in which these things come to be, and if there is real reality to them, then God knew before He created anything that these were among the ways that things can be. He intended to make a world that would exhibit these properties. And therefore we have to say, you know, either he got that knowledge from something besides himself or he got it all on his own. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it does God more honor, not to mention uh, offering a simpler metaphysics to say that God just gets it from himself, not from mm-hmm. anywhere else. Okay. okay so, so um, um, in considering, considering Aquinas, Aquinas, I'm getting, I'm a, getting little a little feedback, feedback there. there. Uh, okay. No, I'm still, still hearing a little bit. Um, I'll just keep, keep running. It's getting better. Yeah. So, um, in considering Aquinas and his treatment of the, the attributes and, um, he, he uses an analogy, right? So, so wisdom, the wise philosopher is, uh, he's wise and the wisdom there is analogous to God's, uh, it's not univocal, not equivocal, uh, is the, is the, do you first do you like that? And uh, second, you know, is the lion is the lioness that is instantiated in the lion at the zoo? Is that univocal to a lioness in God, or or is it like following Aquinas uh, analogical? Yeah, good. Um, I so there there's this supposed to be this big debate between. You know, Scotus, who supports univocity, and Aquinas, who supports analogy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there's a lot to this debate. I, I really don't. Um, and I know, 
I don't have enough time to fully defend that. And so to certain right. listeners, that would, it will sound like yet another crazy thing that I'm saying. But um, when Aquinas uh, uh, argues for analogy, for analogy, he rejects univocity for what seems like a strange reason from the perspective of the Scotist or someone who, someone who supports univocity of the sort that Scotus supports. Um, Aquinas rejects univocity of terms we use about both God and creatures because he rejects rightly that the causal relationship between God and creatures is univocal. Right. Now, uh, this way of thinking about causal relations as univocal or equivocal sounds strange from the perspective of contemporary philosophy of religion people who are who know something about the religious language debates. Yeah. But it was a perfectly normal way of talking about causation for Aquinas. Uh, to be a univocal cause of an effect is simply to have the same nature as the effect that you cause. Yeah. So it's univocal in that sense. And Aquinas rightly denies that the God-creature relation, causal relationship is univocal because no creature has the same nature as God. Um, and then infers from that that all the language that we use to talk about God can be only at best analogical and not univocal. But he lays down as a condition for whatever he might mean by analogical language, that uh, the meaning of terms is uh, uh, sufficiently preserved across uses, uses yeah. for God and uses for creatures, that we still have valid, we can still have valid deductive reasoning. Um, Scotus, when he says, oh, most, some, some of our language about God is univocal. The only thing he is thinking about is preservation of validity. Right. So I, I, I do think that uh, there are certain metaphysical issues that ramify from the different answers that Aquinas and Scotus give on this question. But at the core, you know, uh, sufficient unity of meaning to preserve validity. That's what both care about. Right. Aquinas right. calls that analogy. Scotus calls that university. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a lot of literal. Bad. Yeah. 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 You can still speak literally. That's, that was, that was something they both wanted to emphasize. Otherwise you, there's, you know, uh, you're equivocating. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, when it comes to um, divine attributes, Aquinas says, yeah, we are speaking literally. Um, the, the thing that we are speaking about, God himself exceeds the, uh, any sort of uh, uh, infinitely exceeds any kind of concept that we could form of whatever attribute we're applying to him. Mm -hmm. But we are speaking literally. Um, Scotus would agree with that. When it comes to the earthy things that we've been thinking about here, <clears throat> Aquinas does say, well, these are metaphorical. When we, when we talk about God as a lion or a lamb, that's metaphorical. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he kind of has a, an implicit theory of metaphor as sort of property overlap, basically, that a lion has uh, great power and in that sense is like God. And so the, they, you know, the concept of the lion and the concept of God overlap at this point. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how metaphor works implicitly for Aquinas. All right. But now, so why would he say that about God's leonine aspect, merely metaphorical, but not um, say that God's wisdom or love are merely metaphorical? And here, I think part of the reason, part of what's going on is 
the way in which Aquinas um, yields God's ideas of creatures. And what I mean by that is this. Aquinas, like Scotus and almost every uh, medieval uh, Christian philosopher, thinks that God has these ideas uh, that are in some sense ideas of himself, but he, he inserts a step to, so to speak, uh, generate or explain how God's one simple idea of himself can be um, ramified into these many facets. And the, the, and the step is this, that God, in perfectly knowing himself, would know every possible way in which he could be imitated. Yeah. And so uh, God's idea of an imitation, a possible imitation of himself, just is God's idea of a purely creaturely way of being. Mm. And so we can, um, you know, maybe distinguish for Aquinas the attributes that characterize what God is in himself from all of the, uh, you know, lower down creaturely ways of being that are, um, that are, that are originally thought of merely as ways God can be imitated. Yeah. So we could put the mustache somewhere in there too. Somewhere in there that that there's something, you know, that God to have perfect self-knowledge God would have to know all of the ways that he could be imitated. That's a claim of Aquinas. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that claim, but it's a yeah. plausible claim. Yeah. Um, uh, he would have, as a condition on perfect self-knowledge, he would have to have ideas of every possible imitation. And there's, there's some reality to a mustache. So that at some you know, almost infinitesimally small level, there's a way in which a mustache resembles God. Mm-hmm. And so God would have an idea of it that way. Yeah. Uh, Scotus, uh, and, and I, I try to develop a more Scotist line of thought in the book. Um, and, and I, you know, I mentioned that I originally get it from Scotus, but it's mm-hmm. not Scotus scholarship or Scotus interpretation. Yeah. But Scotus rejects this, um, imitation thought. Um, He certainly thinks that God would be aware of all of the ways that creatures imitate or resemble God. But he thinks that God can't get his ideas of creatures merely by understanding how he can be imitated. Mm -hmm. It's, so to speak, uh, the imitation relation has to relate something that's already there. Yeah. So you need the the relatum uh, of the imitation relation in some sense prior to the imitation, and so yeah. you need you, or, or at the or and God would need to know the relatum, so to speak, in itself prior to knowing the way that it imitates him. Is is that that I think you make uh, I think you raise that as an objection against uh, God makes stuff up. Right. He can't just make it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, I, I think God can't, I deny that God can just make stuff up. And right. by that, I mean that, uh, have a, a, a thinking of something that is a thinking up of something that is utterly original. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the main reason I deny that is that, uh, 
such a thinking up would not be a rational activity. God yeah. would, God could not know what he's doing. Because um, there's no relate. It's not related. There's no uh, relatum. Yeah, I was I was inspired by this. Um, I was inspired by Brian Leftow, who makes similar mm-hmm. comments in his in his big God and Necessity book. Yeah, um, that a, a truly originative thinking up would would lack this condition of intentionality. Uh, you know, even if you build in, you know, God. God is intending to make up something original. And so he's like setting himself up to be surprised or something, something like that. Yeah. Um, that seems fine for less than perfect creative agents, but okay. not fine for something that is um, necessarily ignorant, uh, necessarily not ignorant. <laughs> yeah. So. Can I, can I stay on that point really quick about yeah. um, less than perfect uh, creative agents? So, some some might be saying um, I, I really like the authorial analogy um, for the God world relation. Um, you know, God's like an author, but um, I think you used maybe painting or an artist or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, someone might say, "Hey, look, uh, there's this beautiful picture of uh, Aslan in the Wade Center in Wheaton, Illinois, and someone painted that, and someone painted that picture of this beautiful lion, and yet they aren't Leo Nine, and so uh, I, I'm 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 assuming, um, maybe I read it in your book, that you would say, well, there's asymmetry between the two because the painter is a sub-creator, to, to quote Tolkien, and they, we human beings, created beings, created creators, can never come up with something ex nihilo because we're always pulling from, from creation. But, but then likewise, God's not creating ideas uh, ex nihilo, right? Mm-hmm. So w- would you say there is a, a, that, that asymmetry relation uh or lack of relation between the the created painter and, and God, the the painter of reality. Yeah, th- that's that's one of the ways where the analogy breaks down. Um, you know, again, the you know you, you might think before you get too much in the weeds on all this, all these <laughs> fine points. You you might think actually, as I think about it a little bit, uh, the painter who can who can paint something that is something genuinely other than herself. Like that's, that's real cre- creativity. Wow. And so you think, well, maybe God's creativity is like that, mm-hmm. uh, where he really does just make something brand new. But the, but I, I do, I mean, and, and there's something very attractive about that picture to me. And I even kind of, in an earlier um, article, I, I defended something more like that, but I was, I was led away from it ultimately because again, this concern about uh, preserving God's perfect knowledge in everything that he's doing. Um, And, and reflecting that while it does, while it is impressive that an artist can paint things other than herself, it's, it's actually uh, that, the the artist is dependent on other th- other things existing. It's not yeah. as though the artist of that uh, lion painting gets, you know, just thought up <laughs> the lion. She had to be in contact. He or she had to be in contact with other lions. You know, reading about them in books or or look, going to the zoo to look at them. So it, there's a dependence there that doesn't seem toward to attribute to God 
um, you know, if we're, if we're trying to push that analogy as far as we can, it's like, well, there is something impressive about making something that is not at all like yourself. But then a condition on doing that would be depending on something else for uh, that kind of creative creativity. Mm-hmm. And then if you say, well, no, God just makes stuff up. We're, he's, we're not saying that he depends on anything outside of him. We're not saying that he's turning inward and finding all the created ways of being within himself. Let's just say he just, he just thinks up stuff and then uh, stocks himself with ideas that way, utterly original, mm-hmm. and then makes a world on the basis of whatever these things that he's, that he's thought up. Um, and, and again, the, the basic objection there is God would, God would make up these basic ingredients of created ways of being in a totally non-rational way, um, because he couldn't know prior to thinking them up what he was doing. Right. Except at a very general level of description, you know, like, what am I doing? I'm thinking stuff up. (laughs) Yeah. In that sense, he would know what he's doing. But when he, when he, but he could not, uh, and here I'm, I'm following left out pretty closely, but uh, he could not intend to think up the lion. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that just seems like I'm not, I'm not willing <laughs> to withhold that kind of um, intentionality from God. So, but then if we say, uh, God does intend to create lions. God does eternally know all about lions, you know, not because some other God has already made a world that has lions in it, not because there are abstract objects of lions. Um, God just knows the lion for always. Mm-hmm. And then I think, yeah, it's because what it is to be a lion is part of what it is to be God. Yeah. So, so God, um, and this is great. So God had, uh, lions or Leonine attributes, just lions in mind before he created, otherwise he's rational and you have this action without intention when that seems crazy, or you have to make a broad general intention of, of creativity in the abstract. So that I'm with you. I think that's crazy. Um, maybe we can get into a little bit of your arguments against, um, well, abstractionism, which is, uh, just a platonic realm uh, existing alongside of him, which like PVI I think holds. And I think Keith Yandel maybe too, but that one to me just seems so implausible. Oh, it seems so uh, un uh, Christian, I guess I love those guys, but I like, as a Christian, I'm like, no dude, I don't want to have a abstract realm alongside of God. I think that kind of falls prey to the youth dilemma though. They could defend that, you know, they're way smarter than me, but why, why not, have um, divine ideas uh, be, why, why not the Augustinian route or the Philo route of there's a concept of lion which eternally exists. Um, uh, Greg Welty is a modern proponent of this. Um, theistic uh, conceptual realism, that these concepts don't depend on God because he didn't invent them, and yet they do. He might say something different about lions, but like the non- law of non-contradiction or logical law, something like that, are divine ideas, but... Um, they're, they just eternally exist as, as his ideas, but you, you, you don't, you, you say something different than that, right? Yeah. Um, I am 
really attracted to that uh, conceptual that that conceptual framework. And in the in the book, I I say something like, "This is a pretty good view. Why do we want to keep pushing here?" Yeah. And uh, in the end, I think we can we can push a little bit more and mm-hmm. get and get a little bit more explanation. And that doing like the little bit more explanation um, makes a little bit more sense metaphysically and really gives us this, uh, I think, profoundly inspiring uh, vision of the whole created order as um, representing God in, in a real way. But the, yeah. here's here's the, the so this extra little push that I'm talking about. Yeah, it's to say, like on the conceptualist view, you know, you you, you get these concepts that have you know lion content or uh, mustache content. They're not they're not about anything because prior to creation, there's nothing for them to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just you know if you just try to think of the the content of a mustache without. Um, the reference to or the aboutness of an idea to a mustache. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, that picture of an idea that in one important sense is not about anything. But on the uh, exemplarist uh, view that I advocate, um, we can say they are about something mm-hmm. they're, they're about god now what's the what's the cost of doing that well we end up having to say that there is um this mysterious kind of leonine aspect about god or mustachioed aspect about god and a lot of people are going to think that that's really strange even if they won't think it's strange to talk about god being loving or wise or a father um, and so on. So I, I understand that hesitation, but what we, what we gain, I think is a deeper explanation of why there are the divine ideas. There are, you know, Mm -hmm. on the conceptualist view, there's something just as primitive about God's having the concepts that he has as there is about a platonic realm having just the platonic objects right. it has. Yeah. Like, well, why, why did, why does God eternally have the concept of a lion? Uh, is, is it just, is it just because? <laughs> and the, like that kind of, you know, God's having lion content in mind eternally just seems to cry out for explanation yeah and the conceptualist ultimately can't give it the conceptualist might be able to give a story about how god's ideas are um are categorically structured you know Mm -hmm. the uh, in a you know big porphyrian tree or something like that and so you could get some kind of derivation or grounding relationships between different ideas that would offer partial explanations. Um, of course you'd get that on, you could get that on a, on an exemplarist view too. 
But I think what exemplarism get, gives you is an answer to the question, why does God eternally have line content in, in mind? Well, because he t- eternally thinks himself. Now, can we give an explanation of why lion content is part of the divine essence, uh, partially constituted of the, div- the divine essence? No, we can't give an explanation of that. Okay. That's, but, but, then, but then we've stopped at the right kind of spot. Yeah, the <laughs> buck stopped stops God. with God. Yeah, We really have stopped with yeah. God instead yeah. of, um, you know, someone criticized me for using this barnacle um, uh, metaphor to talk about the conceptualist view. You know, you get, they're just kind of stuck on God, like barnacles on a whale. Yeah. And I, I meant it. I meant it. I did not mean it pejoratively, but I understand the, <laughs> why someone took issue with it. Yeah. So. I don't know why thinking of a barnacle analogy or metaphor would be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> how, how can you even take that the wrong way? Yeah. But if I, if I offended any of my conceptualist <laughs> friends out there by the, by the image, uh, of the barnacle. I'm really sorry about that. I meant no offense, but it, but it was just meant to show that the, you know, the, 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 the whale really it's, it's, it's supporting the barnacle, Mm -hmm. but the whale isn't providing any explanation of why the barnacle is there. Why, why, why the barnacle has just that shape and color and size and so on. It's just, stuck on yeah um so the only the only explanatory advantage of exemplarism over conceptualism is that is that little extra push we get a uh we get god at the end of our explanation instead of something that god thinks at the end of our explanation yeah and i think that's satisfying uh not just on purely religious grounds you know, again, alluding back to our earlier conversation, part of the conversation about wanting to give God as much glory as possible, but but also on on metaphysical grounds. You know, if you if you're a theist, uh, it makes more sense for God to be the buck stops here explanation of everything. It's uh, everything that God could possibly be a buck stops explanation of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, um, man, I'm getting, I'm getting a little feedback, feedback too. too. Oh, okay. I can't hear anything. Okay. Um, it, it's going away now. I don't know why it does that, but um, so this makes sense for me when it comes to uh, uh, possibilities, necessities, um, like the law of non-contradiction. Uh, Welty and Anderson's paper, the Lord of Non-Contradiction. I asked uh, Dr. Anderson on one of our episodes. Uh, about a, a kind of a truth maker theory to to go further than there. So they have this this necessary truth, this proposition, the law of not contradiction, or pick whatever logical or necessary truth that you want. So uh, God is the God's nature is the truth maker, which makes that proposition true. So you have the truth bearer and the truth maker, and you have this grounding relationship that makes a lot of sense. And it wasn't until reading uh, your account here that you're. I, I don't know if you're. I don't know if you'd want to be committed to a truth maker kind of theory or anything like that you might be even talking about something different but it's the same kind of thing that god's nature is grounding the the leonine attributes as well just like i wanted to ground uh the law of non-contradiction not only just find it uh, in god's mind but ground it actually in his nature yeah 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 that's good um i don't i don't think in general i i don't think uh, about propositions too much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
And I mean, yes, yes, and no, right? Are, are, you 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 don't think about them, but you do think your thoughts have propositional I think, content. <laughs> I think by means of propositions. <laughs> yeah. um, but what what I mean there is is that the uh, uh, you know the the kind of reification of propositions mm-hmm. that many analytic philosophers um, uh, do is. Uh, it's it's a world I I know a lot about. I studied it in grad school, but it's not my philosophical parlance. Um, I'm not. I don't really have strong views about what propositions are. Of course, I don't think that they're abstract objects. Um, does God have a propositional structure in his thoughts? I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm I'm not. I'm not committed one way or another about propositions, but, uh, but the general point uh, there's, there's deep accord there. You you don't just, you don't just stick thoughts in God's mind. Uh, You make God have something to do with either the, uh, the existence of the thought itself, the content of the thought uh, or the, the truth of the thought. If the, if the thought is truth evaluable, um, that God, God has something, God is the reason for the truth, the content, even the reality of the thought that is in his mind. Yeah. So at, at that level, yeah, deep, deep concord. Okay, okay. Uh, just a, a few more things that I, that I got to ask you about. So um, what about what about evil? Does, does this position, like, are you forced into a, a privationist view of, of, of evil? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I embrace that independently of the exemplarist uh, view that I develop here. Um, so, yeah, evil as corruption of the good, or evil as uh, lack of goodness where goodness should be. Okay. Um, there are no uh, things, no realities that are intrinsically evil. Um, so that there is no aspect of god that is evil you know yeah oh the cockroaches and mosquitoes they're just evil always cockroaches yeah i hate cockroaches Uh, so do i i really do um but like no i i don't either they're a corruption of some like originally good little bug and maybe a demon got in there and (laughs) them you know like sauron and the orcs uh maybe i don't have an opinion about that yeah but whatever is real about a cockroach there's the cockroach aspect of god and and I'm and I'm fine with that. Um, privation theory. I think the some people want to. Some people get uncomfortable with the thought of you know viruses being real and but not evil. Uh, I, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, of course, a virus can be bad for us, um, but something's being bad for us doesn't doesn't make it bad uh there's a there's a something real to being a virus that uh god has some kind of creative control over Mm -hmm. whether or not this world will be a world in which viruses exist and which kinds of viruses exist and um so I'm, I'm fine with that i think the harder stuff for privation to pull off of privation theory of evil the harder part is to think about, um, evil acts. Yeah. 
and uh, you know, like an act of murder, it's there's something real about <laughs> an Definitely. act of murder. Yeah. Uh, so what's the it, what's the privation theory of evil analysis of an act of murder? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's what's the the thing that's missing or the thing that's gone wrong? Is it the mere fact that it's a killing? Uh, is it the mere fact of the knife piercing flesh? It, you know, it, it becomes hard to locate just where the privation is. Right, right. In in evil acts. Right, because a knife can cut cheese and that's a good thing because it's good. But So then if you want to make it that, but then there's this whole de- depiction of the whole action of murder and the intention behind it and stuff. Or maybe yeah. even the intention, right? So if depending on what you mean by thoughts, if thoughts exist or don't exist, there's an evil thought of intending to murder, which yeah. seems like it's a thing, but... I'm I'm sympathetic to privationist theories. I just wanted to see if it, yeah yeah. If it, I, but I think that's it. where that's where all the really hard work has to be done is okay. is in the um, the analysis of evil acts. Okay, that's where the that's where I have run into most of my puzzles. But so far, I um I still feel confident that it can be pulled off. Okay, yeah, I didn't I didn't mean to add on yeah. uh, just a small topic no, no, of yeah, evil I'm at the glad end. Glad you our... brought that up though. That, yeah. that it does require um, a very what I think of, I, th- I think of the privation theory of evil as a fundamentally joyful metaphysics that mm. the, that things are good. Things are good. Um, yeah. So yeah, you have to embrace that, but it's worth embracing. Yeah, sure, it's a good thing to embrace. Uh, okay, and then uh, I'm, I'm sure someone's thinking about volunteerism. Does this commit you to to like volunteerism? And I would and initially, before you answer, I would say probably not because uh, there is. Uh, something Leo nine about God himself. And so it's, he couldn't make a different, well, he could he have, uh, I don't know. Maybe you just answer. Uh, what, what do you make of like volunteerism? Could God have made a, a square circle or a triangle that was a circle or, you know, not, not just the, the language, right. But the actual essence of the thing that we have his, his, could he have changed his divine ideas? No, no, because he can't change himself. Yeah. That's what I figured. Uh, that's, that's the idea. Boom. And, um, and I think that the, uh, that God's thinking is ordered by um, principle of non-contradiction and so on. And so I, I would reject divine ideas of square circles okay. uh, for that reason. Now saying that is consistent with saying that God might be able to think through some problem that we could never, you know, if, if we attempted to think about something, we could only, we could only think of it as contradictory or something like that, because we just can't think well enough about it. Maybe yeah, God, yeah. you know, knows the special theorem that makes it all work or something like that. But that's, but I don't have any, right. I don't have, I have zero reason to think that that's the case when it comes to things, something like a square circle. Okay. So God might have the answer. We might get to heaven and, and he'll tell us the answer for the liar paradox or something like, yeah, that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, you, you've given me so much of your time. This has been fantastic. Uh, sorry, real, real, real quick. Yeah, so, I'm I'm in no rush. So oh, if you okay, wanna, okay, it, great. I, yeah, I, yeah, it's just fine. Right. I'm having a lot of fun. Well, this is yeah, this has been fantastic for me. You you brought up um, another pretty weird thing that I thought was so interesting about uh, abstract uh, about abstracta, and you're saying you might be sympathetic. And I don't know if it's Scotus or you're pulling it for someone. Uh, you might be sympathetic to like a 
an angelic like being type thing. So like uh, uh, an angel having dominion or a, a angelic type being having dominion over squares or over triangles. And it's got this like yeah. Charles Williams, a place, uh, the place of the lion, you know, type thing going on. Can you yeah. say it's not a huge part of your book? I just grabbed it because I thought it was so interesting. I know it's not something you've defended a ton or anything like that. Can you just broach that for us? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, uh, when I bring it up in the book, the, the context is the, um, I think, a brief discussion about what what kinds of criteria we should use to adjudicate theories, mm-hmm. or competing theories. Um, so nowadays, we are really into simplicity, elegance, parsimony, these kinds of things. Yeah. And... You know, the, the principle of parsimony, what we call Occam's razor, which is Aristotle's razor. <laughs> I mean, he, it's not original to Occam. It's, right. it's a quotation from Aristotle. Almost all medieval philosophers use the principle of parsimony. Um, so, so it's not as though parsimony was foreign to, to these people. But in our own day, parsimony, simplicity are the... Uh, uh, the main criteria we, and of course, coherence, like assuming coherence, then what, yeah. what else, do we, what else do we look for as a guide to truth? Um, but you know, when you have, when you have this view about, uh, the great chain of being and the, the plenitude of what is real, um, just as as interested as medieval philosophers were in parsimony, they were equally interested in a universe that had no gaps. Mm-hmm. You know, so wherever there was ontological space for something to be, mm. even if it wasn't observed, even if there were no other good arguments for its existence, it was it was considered reasonable to posit the existence of a thing occupying that gap. Um, so why are there angels? Well, because it's there's a kind of fittingness yeah. that the world would have uh, material, non-rational beings, um, rational material beings, and rational immaterial beings. And angels are the rational immaterial beings. So, so there's this kind of principle of plenitude that's at work in theories. And I think what I was trying to do there in, in the section of the book you're alluding to was just say, I do think my, my theory uh, is good on grounds of simplicity and elegance, but I don't want to make that the ruling criteria of whether the theory is a good uh, to be accepted or not, because I'm kind of attracted to this idea of plenitude as uh, providing a good key to what things there are. So this idea of of ruling intelligences and so on, you might think, well, that's there's just something abundant, like something grossly <laughs> overabundant about uh, about that ontology. Yeah, like, well, why not? I mean, God, God clearly is not very efficient in the, right. the way right. that he set things up, right? Like right. human salvation, uh, depending on you know the church, like behaving itself and going out to all the world and sharing the gospel and so on. It's like, really? I mean, he wants helpers, even at the cost of a lack of efficiency. Mm -hmm. That seems to be something we learn about God. And uh, so why, why not in the, uh, 
in the angelic realm have something like sub-creative ministers, you know, like angel 45 is the oak tree guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so when God says, let there be oak trees, uh, it's ex nihilo, but it's ultimately ex nihilo, but it's somehow ordered through these other creative spirits. Yeah. So it was an example. I mean, I, I was thinking actually of uh, Tolkien's cosmology that he oh, offers yeah. in the Silmarillion, where yeah. in Tolkien's uh, world, the Eru, the one God, creates these angelic-like beings or gods, little g gods, and then um, they are involved in the creation of Middle Earth. Yeah, they join in the singing, right? Yeah, they join in the singing, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I mean, I don't... I have no dogmatic commitment to right. right. that works like that. Yeah. I was I was holding it out there as uh, you know get as an example of how um, a too too strong a commitment to simplicity and parsimony might um, close us off from thinking as plausible um, views that are more complicated, but maybe closer in line with how God seems to how God seems to want to work in creation. I mean, yeah. the, there's something about the, the very fact of a, of a world that exists, a created world, is itself kind of the, the er-inefficiency, the, the, the er-rejection of, of a simple cosmos. Um, God didn't need anything. Yeah. And so the, the fact that anything exists at all shows that God is... God himself is not that into simplicity. And so why our theories, um, why our theories of things should be adjudicated on the basis of simplicity and, and parsimony, I think is itself a, a kind of methodological, um, not mistake. I'm not willing to go that far, but it's an under scrutinized yeah. methodology. And that uh, as Christian philosophers, maybe, uh, we shouldn't feel beholden to it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's I, I brought, I brought it up, up um, partially, partially to emphasize, emphasize that. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting my feedback, but it, there it's going away again. I I brought it up because uh, it it further emphasizes your uh, em- your emphasis on God's personality. That God's a person; He's a creative person, and I love that you said God's not efficient because, again, I, I love the authorial analogy and the, the I would say the point of reality is is God telling a, a story. And if he wanted to be a, a mathematical, you know, logic chopper, he could have done it way more efficiently, but he did it because he's a person, you know, he's not just the, uh, he's not just Philo's um, uh, engineer, you know, he's not just planning up the, the, but he's telling a rich story. Even our natural language is so hard to analyze uh, formally because it's so rich and that's like the world. And I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, uh, a theologian, John Frame talked about this once and he had to write a paper um, kind of giving a, an ancient view of the world. And he wrote about angels shaking the trees. Mm. And and he's like, you know, I accidentally convinced myself. And I don't know if I'm totally held to it, but it's kind of a similar idea that yeah. there's like an angel in charge of the wind and and making the trees shake. Yeah. And so even though you can, it's compatible with science, right? It'd be extra. And so the principle yeah. of parsimony would say cut it off, but it might be the way that things are because God uh, is a storytelling God. And there's this angelic realm of story going on because why not have more story? Yeah, that that's exactly right. I mean, I I sometimes tell my students about the uh, the scene in 
the voyage of the dawn treader mm-hmm. when they meet a star i think that might have been in the book too but i'm not sure um, you quoted the voyage of the dawn treader in there but yeah maybe I not. i don't think i did this part but, okay. but i might have because I, I do i do share this a lot but ramandu is a star mm-hmm. but he's he looks like a dude <laughs> so, okay that's weird but we're in a fairy tale all right, all right. and so he goes on to explain that he's a, a retired star um and the kids are just amazed as you'd expect they would be and and one says uh in our wow in our world stars are just a bunch of flaming gas yeah and Ramandu says, even in your world, child, that is only what they are made of. Yeah. And so then you get this wonderful um, uh, re- rehearsal of this uh, view about heavenly spheres that goes all the way back to Aristotle and, and before, where the, 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 the matter that we could see really is just something like the body or the material of a star. But each one is an intelligence uh why do the as they thought why do the planets move in perfectly circular motion around the earth well because they have an intelligent pilot (laughs) guiding them now you know some of that i don't think there's any anything uh wrong with with issuing some of their uh astronomy but but yeah to the basic fact of like the the appearance of things might might be might lead us to think of things more simplistically than uh, than God would have us think of them as. Yeah. So, um, uh, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Dr. No, I'm okay. I'm into that again. It's the sort. It's the sort of thing where it would be strange to develop a, a like a very confident view that right. every time the wind blows, some angel named Bob was yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to be open to that kind of superabundance of being uh, within God's created world, uh, to have the personal implicated in as much of the way things are as uh, as possible. I mean, I, I think holding ourselves open to all of these kinds of views is is the right way to inhabit the world, even if it doesn't change, you know, credences about particular propositions yeah. um, about an angel being here or there doing such and such. Yeah. I, I love that point. Uh, Chesterton talks about that a little bit with like symmetry and he, in talking about God's creativity. And he's like, you know, if you look at the human body, you see a lung on this side, a lung on this side, you see two hands, then you see a heart on this side and, oh, there's not a heart on that side. Right. And so it's not all this symmetrical, perfect uh, analytic philosopher's uh, dream, I guess, too. But or, or maybe math, mathematician or, or uh, something like that. Uh, in, in closing up here, I wanted to just briefly broach um, God's, God's own existence and his idea of his existence. So you got guys like, um, like Hugh McCann and Descartes who say God's responsible for his own uh, existence. I like Hugh McCann, but he's got some really weird views too. Like, uh, yeah, I, I really like him, but he's, he's got some interesting stuff that I disagree with. Um, what, what do you make? Is God's, is God's, existence um is it just a is it a brute fact we kind of talked about how the buck stops with him um it, yeah it did, is he is it is god's nature uh god's existence a, a brute fact yeah yeah i i can't um i can't make any sense of the causa sui view um 
if a thing uh, is in need of being caused, um, it can't do anything it, until it's until it has been caused. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, I, I understand, you know, that it, it would be magnificent if God were so um, powerful that He could make even Himself, mm-hmm. or God were so powerful that He could have some sort of control over what his nature is. Um, but in the end, I don't think any of these views make sense. Like, like literally, literally they're just, they're absurd. Um, and so it's not, it's not so much like I'm not willing to give God this great thing. Uh, I'm, I'm not willing, I'm not willing to assert um, nonsense. Yeah. And so as it turns out, if it is nonsense, it, it's not such a great thing after all. You know, you're, you're well, asking yeah. God to be nonsensical, and that is nonsensical. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so we, we covered a lot here, but there's actually a lot more that your book touches on. And uh, you, you get into, you, you talk about transcendentals, which which is fantastic. I love anytime someone's talk, bringing that language back. That was really fun. Yeah. Um, the book's great. It's it's short. It's uh, like I said, it's a Cambridge Elements book, so it so it has to be short. Um, but it's a great book. I recommend all the listeners uh, check that out. And then, uh, Doctor Ward, I was looking at your blog this morning, and you talked about uh, I, I forgot who you're putting in conversation, but you had uh, Iluvatar and uh, and maybe Scotus or someone. Why why Iluvatar is not God? So it's really fun. That's the kind of like philosophy and philosophical theology I love. So. Um, can you point our listeners to to your website or where else they where they can find more of your work? Good. Well, thanks, Parker. I really appreciate that. But I, I do have a, a website, um, thomasmward.com, uh, T-H-O-M-A-S-M as in Michael Ward. And uh, I'm, I'm a lazy blogger, so it's it's only every now and then. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that I blog shows that I'm like getting pretty old because uh, <laughs> I, I think I should be doing like a sub stack or something isn't that what the kids are doing now? Uh, yeah something uh, <laughs> yeah but I, i'm um uh there is a i i should say i don't have a link yet because it's um it's only been recently accepted but in the divine ideas book uh, scotus makes some appearances but i i don't do a lot of scotus interpretation or anything um partly it's because i wanted the theory to stand on its own yeah um, and not just be historical work, but I've just re- I've just written a book, uh, which is an introduction to Duns Scotus. Oh, it's wow. called "Ordered by Love: An Introduction to Duns Scotus," and it was written um, kind of in the mode of uh, Chesterton's book on Aquinas. If you've read yeah. that before, the Dumb I haven't Ops. read it, but I, yeah, I have. You're it. Yeah. familiar with it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's not for specialists. Uh, it's trying to explain. Um, Aquinas in his case, Scotus in my case, trying to explain our our figures in a way that educated non-specialists can understand. Um, I'm really excited about it. it. Should be coming out next year. Scotus is a in certain circles uh, among Christian intellectuals. He's um, kind of a he's a polarizing figure. Yeah. Um, a lot of people really don't like him. I've spent most of my career trying to rehabilitate Scotus for. Uh, faithful Christians and try to try to make the case that he's not the bad guy he's been made out to be mm-hmm. uh, by a lot of people. And this book is kind of the fruit of my attempt to 
uh, to make that case. And then I'll, I'll, I probably won't write anything um, on SCOTUS ever again. It's sort of like my last word. So sure. uh, I'm excited to get the word out about the book, Ordered by Love, uh, Angelico Press, coming out next year. Okay, awesome. Yeah, maybe maybe come back on. We could talk about that as well. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, um, that's going to have to do it, folks. Uh, we could talk about this more, and Lord willing, someday we will. But uh, that's it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. Mm-hmm.